0: Lane shift ahead. We're looking at a little departure from the straight and narrow on today's episode of the Business of Biotech. I'm your host, Matt Piller, and today we're turning to a leader from the big pharma scene for some conversation on how to attract and retain advanced therapy, development, manufacturing, and clinical talent. It's an important discussion in an industry where that talent is in short supply and the competition for it is relentless. Michael Mailer is an uber-focused expert in cell therapy, clinical, and regulatory matters. His experience dates back to his days as research study associate at Stanford and clinical research manager at Penn, and he's further honed those skills in senior roles at Adaptimmune and GSK, where he currently serves as senior clinical development manager, working specifically on cell therapy oncology. In the roles he's played on the front lines and in the trenches of cellular therapeutic development, from clinical activity to approval and beyond, Michael has seen and felt the strain of a fast-paced industry that's severely short on the skilled talent necessary to sustain its potential. So today, my friend and colleague, Aaron Harris, chief editor at SalenGene.com, is once again joining me for a conversation with Michael, who also happens to be an active member of Aaron's editorial board. Aaron, welcome back. And Michael, I'm thrilled you could join us.
1: Thanks for having me back, Matt.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yeah, well, we're excited to have you. Um, and uh, I want to start uh, by sort of getting some perspective, Michael, on on your career. So uh, your your career, I guess, as it relates to this fast-moving uh, space in cell and gene specifically cell therapy. So you you've been in the game for what about 15 years?
2: Uh, yeah, about, uh, I would say, yeah, about 15 years
0: now. Yeah. Yeah. Going on 15 years, maybe. So regardless, that's, uh, you know, the, the 15 year time frame. that's early days for, yes. for cell and gene for sure. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm curious from a talent perspective, uh, if you could kind of tell us when, when you, when you first started cur- your career in the space, um, What were the challenges facing professionals like you getting involved in cell therapy? And and what do those challenges look like today? Do they still exist? Are they, you know, maybe not as acute?
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. And it's interesting to hear you mention Stanford, too, because if you kind of go all the way back, I'm actually a perfect example of someone who is not necessarily, you know, a bench lab scientist or a wet lab scientist. But who truly, at 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 my foundation, has a, a an an incredibly uh, uh, high curiosity for certain types of research. So back at Stanford, we and this was in postgraduate school. Um, uh, you know, I I volunteer there in their research department, working on um, some genetic research they were doing in the psychophysiology department. So. You know, my master's degree is in um, experimental research. So learning how to do uh, clean research, so to speak. And at Stanford, some of the folks that we worked with, they're actually some of the folks who ended up um, co-founding 23andMe. So that was my first insight into genetic research. Um, after that, I came back to Pennsylvania and was offered, you know, a position at University of Pennsylvania, where we were executing a lot of phase one clinical trials and, um, certainly interesting and exciting. And that was uh, my first step into clinical research, but it wasn't until my experience at Adaptimmune as a clinical scientist and a very young biotech company with just a handful of people here in the clinical operations group in the States that I was exposed to the cell and gene therapy side. So I wouldn't say the challenge getting into it was, um, was incredible, but there's no doubt I was drawn to the company and asked to join them based on my uh, really just overwhelming response to how, how groundbreaking the research that they were doing was and to be able to actually help people. So I think that's important to note that in this space, right, it's fast, it's challenging. You need to be incredibly innovative, but at your core, you have to have that curiosity and quite frankly, to think that this research is just really cool because it is. If you look around at what we do, I'm, I'm grateful every day to actually be in this space where we are helping people. But also, if you think about what we're doing, using your own T cells to harness an immune response to fight cancer, the, you know, one of the leading causes of death in the world. I mean, it is truly incredible. Uh, so I think that's important to sort of have that foundation of curiosity drive and innovation in this type of space, even for non bench lab scientists like myself. Yeah. Um, so those challenges, uh, specifically, you know, again, getting in, I don't think it as much so long as you can find the right talent.
0: Yeah. And that, you know, it's, it's interesting. You should, you should point to that curiosity, uh, you know the the point you make about curiosity. I recently had a call with some folks over at Project Pharma uh, that we turned into a roundtable. We published on Bioprocess Online, and it was on this very very topic. You know, yeah. addressing the, the the talent crunch and and cell and gene manufacturing. And um, you know, they they talked about that. They talked about like you know even today uh, the 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 real. It's sort of a two pronged exercise. One of them being like you know what institutions are helping to prepare cell and gene knowledge and talent, Mm -hmm. but also that curiosity being a a key kind of prong on the spear because it's got to come from within. Like when you, when you went to adapt immune, what was that? Five, five years ago ish.
2: This was back in 2013,
0: 13. Yeah. More than, more than five years ago, but, but yeah, in 2013, when you joined adapt immune and became exposed to the cell and gene work that they were doing, it was like, (laughs) <laughs> you know, you, you didn't necessarily come from uh, a rigorous cell and gene clinical trials training background. You yeah. had to have that curiosity and develop the, the expertise from within along with your, your colleagues, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think what's nice now, you know, when when we were doing this at Adapment with such a small group, right, there was a kite, there was Juno. But there were no, you know, there were no SOPs for product development. And we saw things occurring at clinical sites that, you know, I can say for sure are not occurring now, whether it's what do nurses, you know, how do they thaw products? How do they inspect products? What happens when these cells come back to a hospital? You know, when back in 2013, it, it, it was not occurring as much as it is now. I mean, there's hundreds of these companies. The nurses are now over, the cell therapy staff, they're now overwhelmed at the hospitals with so many. But you talk about almost 10 years ago, and we saw patients being maybe at-risk lymphodepleted prior to the product would arrive on site, where we would say it will get there, and maybe there were human error or hiccups that occurred before um, the patient could get infused, you know, while the product was en route. And those types of errors um, or, or learnings, I mean, they were they were incredibly impactful for patient safety, uh, for company, for developing these SOPs that now exist for whether it's an emerging biotech or, or global pharma. But back in 2013, there were very few of these processes and procedures that existed in this space. So those challenges um, they don't exist as much today, but they certainly were very evident back in 2013, which I'm still grateful to have been, you know, a part of that. But there were there were some um, challenging learnings for sure in a young small biotech where this had not been done uh, nearly as prevalent as it is today.
1: Yeah, sure. And Michael, I think so. One of the things that I know I've talked to. Uh, your peers on our editorial advisory board about this very thing of how uh, how much the sector has evolved in terms of the need for skilled talent but how skilled talent they've they've attracted and they've retained them and how as a result of how far the sector has come but the need is still very great Um, and so how do we go about that how do we find them how do we, how do we retain them and so what's your perspective on that where do you think the greatest need today maybe even versus your days back in Adap- at adapt immune is for skilled talent and it's probably across the board if i would imagine but what's your take on that
2: yeah i think for sure with the amount of you know new agents that are coming up i mean uh, we know in 2025 that there will be hundreds of INDs that the FDA are reviewing for these types of therapies. So, so automatically right off the bat, the manufacturing, whether it's allogeneic or autologous mm-hmm. or vaccine development, you're going to need to have skilled manufacturing teams. Uh, and, and these, these folks, you know, the, the training that occurs for them, that's certainly a need right now. Uh, there's no question about that. But that said, there's also in clinical development, because of how complex these products are in delivering them to patients, clinical development also has a a strong need for folks that can sit cross-functionally and they can speak to um, each element that occurs from a vein to vein or even an allogeneic off-the-shelf product. So I think both manufacturing and clinical development need skilled experts in this space Um, that are able to have a really strong understanding of what occurs from a vein vein to vein experience for patients. Um, I I think, you you know, I think you could also, I think finding a talent for that is certainly challenging, but in a manufacturing standpoint, I think training could occur earlier. There are certainly postgraduate degrees, you know, in biotech and and certain manufacturing um, areas. So so I'm not so sure exactly how you can find these people or get the training up to speed, but I know that that's there's certainly a gap there.
1: Okay. And even if we bring them on earlier, from a training perspective, or even from, you know, once they've begun with their teams, what sort of perhaps, you know, ongoing education or experience can they learn on site? Like if you had to talk to you know, since we're talking to small emerging biotechs, sure. what is your advice for the people who are already on the team to keep for, in terms of ongoing training, what do you think could help them meet their needs?
2: Yeah. So I think the first thing to remember is we learn the most from the clinical sites that are, that are um, performing these, that, that are administering these therapies i think whether it's a young emerging biotech or a global pharmaceutical company the first thing to remember is that the people at the hospital and of course the patients first they are the ones that have the most insights into what's working and what's not working so we have found that um, having consultancies uh, or you know working closely with our sites to understand What's working? What's not working? What we can do better? What's um, you know making the patients' lives more challenging because of this therapy? That's something that we have found that we bring that information back, and then we implement additional training at the company. So, um, you know, I think that's the first thing to keep in mind is that it's really the people who are actually administering these therapies in the hospitals that have the most insight into what's working. Even for commercialized product, we hear you know, this went really well and this did not go very well. And the younger companies that are coming up need to get that information so that they're not just repeating the same mistakes that that happened. And we hear firsthand from clinical sites that tell us, look, this really did not go well. Let us help you so that when you commercialize this and bring this to market, that it can be smoother than the first few go-rounds that we've had with other products. So I think when you get that information from what has worked and what has not worked, that's how you can implement where the training is needed and um, how the training can be applied to folks at your company, uh, whether it's a young company or or a large company.
0: Michael, when you talk about that feedback loop that you just referenced at the at the yeah. clinical site in the hospital, um, is that I just want to make sure that I'm clear on this is is that feedback coming from. Hospital staff or is it coming from GSK GSK uh, employees or, you know, adapting whatever the, the company employees kind of on the ground?
2: Yeah, these are, no, these are from uh, directly from hospital staff and directly from uh, uh, hospitals that have administered cell therapy products.
0: Yeah, that's like, an incredible.
2: It, yeah, it really is. And that to me is something that we I don't think we forget, but it's something to keep in mind. I know for sure, and I'm guilty of it too, thinking that we have all the answers and that we know and we approach clinical sites and we say, this is what you need to do. <clears throat> and in return, sometimes the clinical sites say, that's not actually what we need to do. We can't have seven collections or we can't administer this uh, you know, during these days. We can't collect cells during these days or we can't ask a patient to stay even for commercialized products for 30 days within this. So, so there's a, so much feedback that is, uh, incredibly valuable that we hear from the clinical sites and I think for as for as fast um, you know and as as developed as this space is becoming I think we have to sort of step back occasionally and remember to check in with the with the clinical sites and the patient journey to see exactly where those pain points are and and to take what we have learned from the first, few products that are out there now commercially available and uh, and to grow from that, to be better and to make this a smoother transition for patients and for clinical sites. So I think in that space is where a lot of this training sits from a clinical development standpoint and partially commercially, um, uh, uh, from a manufacturing standpoint Mm -hmm. as
0: well. Yeah, the variability. I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about the variability of, you know, and and controls in cell uh manufacturing you know lot to lot um we don't spend enough time talking about the variability like in the clinic in in you know in the supply chain even i mean it's it's incredible this is uh i'll piss a lot of people off by saying this but it's like it almost makes a small molecule and monoclonal antibodies seem pretty pretty darn easy to (laughs) procure and produce right yeah it's incredible um yeah go ahead something too that um
2: you know, it's just good to remember that. I mean, if you think about what we're doing, taking your own T cells again and, and bring them back to a patient, it, it's incredible. Uh, I think the supply chain, you know, doesn't not, not that they don't get enough attention, but it's you forget how human error, how impactful human error can be with this, especially with an autologous product. Um, where you have to remanufacture if, you know, say there's a backup bag, if the original didn't get there for some reason, that's, you know, this is not just hanging a bag of saline that you can just grab another one in the back room. Mm-hmm. So, right. if, you know, we move so fast and sometimes we forget to, to pause and look to see and to remind ourselves um, that that is critical. And you can see this with companies now building out different groups that are now patient supply operations groups. So it's not supply chain necessarily, and it's not clinical development, but it's a patient supply group that is actually required to work very closely with our clinical sites. Uh, And this goes for several companies where you have even new roles emerging. You know, it's not a clinical study lead and it's not, you know, a supply chain consultant It's someone who sits cross-functionally who can work directly with our clinical sites in a commercial and a clinical trial setting for cell therapy products that can ask the sites and be that person that says, what is it that we need to do to get these patients that you're identifying treated, again, in a commercial or a clinical trial setting? And that just goes to show the value of, um, of how precious these products are to get to patients. You need someone to be able to, to help manage that. And that's where the expertise of these products comes in. Can you find people that can execute roles like this? Oh. Um, and there will be some time before you can
0: for sure you know and i think it was our intent coming into this conversation to talk about you know where we can offer some insight and and, and benefit to biopharma who are looking to you know attract retain uh, talent for, for for cell and gene manufacturing um, i think as we talk here michael i'm i'm coming to the the, the conclusion that this this conversation is equally beneficial to anyone who's considering entering the the space, right? Mm-hmm. Knowing the the these factors, uh, all, all the variables, you know, the the, the fast pace, um, kind of before you before you come in, coming in with eyes wide open. It's uh, I think this is a super valuable conversation that we're going to have to push out to anyone who's considering, you know, entering entering the field, whether they're coming from another. Uh, p- place in life sciences are coming straight out of academia. You've got to have you got to you got to come into this eyes wide open because it takes a I think a special kind of person.
2: Yeah, and I think that goes to young emerging companies too. You know, the culture that they develop. You know, I can remember with Adaptimmune for sure. With such a small group, I mean, the company now has upwards of 500 employees mm-hmm. when there were four or five of us. The culture there, and maybe culture is not the right word, but all, you know, the small core of us were so driven to get this to patients. And once you see how patients are responding and it's changing their lives and and they are now living quality lives that that chemotherapy and, and other modalities to treat their cancer weren't available that then takes over and you become almost obsessed with getting this safely to patients. But that culture that, that needs to, I think, be developed at a young company is really important because the truth is we can all learn this. You know, I may not be able to sit under a mic you know, and, and look in our microscope and figure things out the way a traditional scientist can, but we can all figure out a way to deliver these therapies to patients. But if you don't have and develop that culture as a company, it will be hard to retain people and it will be hard to get them, especially now as large pharma starts to acquire a lot of companies and products. There's comfort at these bigger companies. And, and if someone said to me, do you want to go back to a young biotech, you know, it, it, it's risky for sure. But yeah. you know, I love the risk and I would I would be thrilled. But, there, you know, there's differences. A lot of people, it's scary to them to go to a young biotech that is not as safe as a bigger, larger pharma company so having that culture and that that's important to start for a young company
0: the business of biotech is brought to you in partnership with citiva together we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial organizational human resources and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's emerging biotech accelerator, at cytiva backslash emerging biotech That's c-y-t-i-v-a-lifesciences.com/backslash-emerging-biotech. That's a good segue. I was, you know, good, good, good pivot point into, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is after talking with Aaron about, you know, your, your role on her uh, advisory board and your background, the fact that you've got that perspective from Immune and this perspective from GSK. Um, so you were just talking about the safety of big pharma. What other advantages does perhaps big pharma have in terms of its ability to retain, re- recruit and retain uh, top top skill in the space?
2: Yeah, you know, there are certain, uh, there are certainly advantages to, to big pharma, right? There are more resources at a large pharma than there are with a smaller company. Um, you know, there are, there's an ability to work too. you know, to collaborate. GSK might be able to collaborate with smaller companies, several of them, where you sort of get, you know, a, a a wider breadth of experience working with these younger companies and the younger companies, these smaller biotechs need that collaboration as well, right? They don't have the resources. So certainly a benefit being able to have more exposure at a large company where you can collaborate with these younger companies. Um, Clinical sites certainly like working with larger companies. Again, there's more resources. They have more experience with them. The the cons, um, you know, younger companies might be able to move faster than larger companies. So, you know, a a small emerging biotech might be able to execute clinical trials much quicker. They can pivot much faster. And having smaller core teams where you have, you know, KOLs involved, sometimes they're, you know, it's more efficient to have smaller than bigger. Um, When I talk, you know, specifically about retaining talent, uh, again, if you have... A company that's developing culture and, and a really exciting product—you know—that is really exciting to some people. But again, the safety of a bigger company sometimes uh, is more attractive. So there's certainly pros and cons um, to each. I think if I were a young company coming up, how would I, you know, attract talent and retain them versus a larger company? Um, you know, I, I think it takes. You'll have to spend a bit more time finding the right people for this uh, and finding people that are going to go above and beyond and that can wear several different hats, so to speak. And that comes back to sort of where we started this conversation, having that foundational drive, passion, curia, you know, curiosity, and innovative mindset to, to really commit to this and want to do it, which is why the talent search for this is, is so challenging. Um, you know, To get someone from global pharma to a small biotech, we certainly see it. And it's the people that say, you know, I want to, I want, that looks really exciting. And I don't know if it's going to, you know, in a couple of years, I don't know where I'll be, but I'm, I'm take, I'm going for it. Uh, So that, you know, the risk taker is certainly needed in these people as well.
1: Yeah, Yeah, sure. There's, there are risk takers and there's that altruistic hunger for, you know, that new and emerging thing that perhaps Mm -hmm. a small and emerging biotech offers that people want to get involved in, but especially so. About a year and a half ago, I would say, I attended an event that LSPA, which is the Life Sciences PA group, put on at Villanova, and they had local area companies. Um, You know, the the topic at hand was supply chain, but this sidebar conversation came out of it from the panelists, all from the Philadelphia region, talking about talent, but how local area companies that happen to be Philadelphia essentially steal from each other. Uh, they they go from, you know, one company to the next still is a bit of a, you know, big word, but um, the people on stage were joking about how I used to work at your company, you used to work at mine, they knew each other. And the whole thing was how these companies sort of, you know, they, they move from company to company, even within their own region. And so my question for you is, you know, it's not uncommon, right, this competitive nature, especially in, 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 in cell and gene therapy, and mm-hmm. how important it is, how are these companies, especially, you know, new and emerging biotechs or the smaller companies recruiting, but retaining these employees so that they're not moving around and how can, what does big pharma do to do that, to, to retain their employees that new and emerging biotechs can learn from?
2: Yeah. So that's a good question. Uh, Well, well, I think the first thing is with hundreds of companies popping up, we have more options now. So, you know, there are more options for me to go to young companies in this cell and gene therapy space, not only here in Philadelphia, but of course in Boston and San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So we do have more options. What attracts people to younger companies still to this day, you know, I don't know that I would say that I knew much about the clinical pipeline of Adaptomy when I joined them. It was more, wow, this seems really exciting. Mm -hmm. But I think now you can compare the product. So you have to have that really strong clinical uh, pipeline or at least scientific uh, backbone for people to join these companies, right? Because there's hundreds of them now. So you can sort of, you know, you can tease them out a little bit. Like what you say, you know, the financing for this company is really small versus this one, which is already $150 million in the first round. So those are things now that we have more experience and folks can look at and say, you know, I don't know if I like the other really critical piece that I certainly, when you look at who the folks are that are supporting these companies, not necessarily who's on the board, but who is it that's involved in these younger companies um, that are, you know, advising them. And when you see those folks, right, it's a small space, you know. Carl June sits on certain company. You, you know you certainly are. Your ears perk up and you and your eyes light up and you think, oh wow! I want to. I'd like to research that a bit more. So, um, these you know these kind of basic uh, principles still apply. With who's involved in the company? How much money does it seem like they're raising? How fast are they moving? You know that will get us into companies. When it comes to retaining it. It comes back again to the culture and also the collaboration you're having with clinical sites, with other and you know with investigators at the sites, um, and really to see the data that's coming out from those. I mean, the the kind of you know traditional principles still apply in this, and that if your data is not looking fantastic, sometimes it's hard to stay committed to a product when you know, you know, that it doesn't look great at the start or even through, you know, some initial kind of uh, rounds of, of clinical studies, um, especially with so many other companies. So I, I think, again, retaining a large or a small company still comes back to your pipeline and how strong your science is with these companies. And that's, you know, because at the end, that's what's going to help these patients. I can say for sure, once you see patients responding, and especially in this small space, seeing and hearing the stories that are happening with these patients i mean it, it it truly changes your life where you then think wow i can't believe that this is what we get you know this is how we're making a living with helping patients and developing and changing the way that cancer is treated and and that is um, you know that's what keeps people at company drives you yeah it really does sounds cliche and sort of you know everyone's slogan with the company but it truly um, it makes a difference.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, from an ongoing perspective, though, what would you say are that biotech decision makers, in terms of what they should be instilling in their teams going forward? What are the the top trends topics? Because cell and gene therapy is it's on a trajectory to you know it's it's gonna it's going and going and going. Mm-hmm. Today and in the near term, what would you say that biotech decision makers need to be ensuring that their teams are learning or, you know, just in terms of trends and topics? What are the things, what are the must have topics?
2: Um, Do you mean for the for the companies, these trends and trainings that are must haves?
1: Yeah. Yeah. mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. So I think we touched a bit on this, but. you know, I, I think, again, understanding what is working and, and what is not working at the, um, at the clinic site level for the patients and for the folks that are administering, administering these types of therapy, whether it's commercial or clinical, taking that information, bringing it back and then implementing your training. So again, I think it comes back to a supply chain, uh, the new developed groups and patient supply, um, understanding exactly what's occurring in a vein-to-vein setting, um, manufacturing. And, you know, within each of these groups, the training, um, you know, again, the information is going to come from our, um, from the learnings that we get from these sites and from the folks that are actually involved in administering the therapies.
0: Yeah. Michael, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts. I mean, I, obviously, we can't anticipate. I think it, I think it would be unfair to anticipate that academia would be able to keep pace with the needs of the industry you serve. Okay, so let's just put that aside for a minute and assume that you know you you can't expect a an annual batch of new graduates that are like up to speed on what's going on in your clinic right now today um in uh, on the manufacturing side in biopharma we see a lot of kind of m- middle uh I, I don't know i don't know if i'd call them kind of middleman institutions but uh institutions resources such as the biomanufacturing training and education center or uh the national institute for bioprocess research and training um trying to fill a gap there like trying to trying to help bridge that gap between academia and and the yeah. space uh the the industry space is there uh are there resources like that available to companies like yours right now if, if not should there be um is is there you know is is there sort of a a place where where uh where you know that you look to or rely on to kind of help bridge that gap and bring up that skill set
2: yeah you know i can't speak to the um you know, those types of offerings at uh, at GSK. But I, I know for sure we have um, people who have joined our company who come fresh from graduate programs in biotechnology that are specific to either manufacturing um, or there's actually even general biotech programs out there. So I know actually uh, we have some folks in Canada that have, have – um, Have completed these programs, and they are some of the most brilliant and invested young people that we have seen. The talent is incredible. Uh And again, this comes back to people who, you know, after college thought the research was really cool. They maybe you know went for biology in college and, and didn't at that point know what to do next, but they were really drawn to this research because the few folks that I know that have gone this route, I've asked them, like, how did that occur? How did you get here? Because you have this same drive and passion. And sure enough, they were graduate programs in biotechnology where they um, were able to take that additional step after college and to get more experience and then enter into, they could have gone either to small biotech or to global pharma. But these fo- that talent coming out, I wish I had the opportunity when I was in graduate school to go this route. Uh, really incredible talent with folks that are that are um, able to tack on after college the additional two to three year programs that are available. I don't know enough about the programs and where they are available, but I, I can tell you for sure that is a massive. Um, uh, you know, you can clearly see the difference when people come to, to join companies with these uh, with these degrees, and um, well, they. They have that foundation again, where they are just so enthralled with this this research, and it's really something else.
0: Well, that's great. I mean, the fact that those programs exist is more than uh, more than I knew, and I'm and I'm happy to hear it. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And I know, you know, there was an article recently in the UK where they're going for you know specifically for manufacturing. I think, um, you know, there are plans of reducing maybe the education needed to get involved in some of these roles, right? Where previously maybe it was a master's or PhD that was required for just to even get your foot in for some of the manufacturing roles. And I think they're now looking at this and saying, you know, maybe that's not the best way with as many jobs that are going to be opening globally in this space. Finding the talent is certainly challenging. Maybe we need to reassess what type of talent we're looking for um, and and this master's program that you know exists in some parts of the world in biotech is certainly uh, a step in the right direction for that.
0: Yeah, I um, yeah I, I read some research recently that talked about the fact that uh, or or the, the the potential that the UK. Might be in position to overtake our uh, the U.S.'s leadership in in clinical yeah. development around cell and therapy. So it's no surprise to me that those laggards, you know, those those lazy folks across the pond would want to lower the bar just so yeah. that they could, you know, further accelerate their. Uh, <laughs> That's right. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, yeah. Dr. Gaspar. I'm kidding. That's just a joke. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> I love it. I mean, it makes so much sense, especially. Um, it, you know it just makes a lot of sense and again i think it's funny you could i we could identify these people you know there were in canada this at the time we hadn't met a ton of people we had the company you know gsk we had sort of just gotten into the space and you could tell there were bright stars in the room that were asking these questions that were young and i remember asking one of my colleagues like who is that And how does she know so much information about this is crazy and yeah. sure enough after getting to you know speak with her she had mentioned this program up in Canada. And, And same thing, right? How did you get into it? She said, I just thought it was really cool. I heard about this immunotherapy and now this cell therapy. And I wasn't sure, you know, what was I going to do with a biology degree? And sure enough, um, has become one of our most, you know, prized uh, people. So it's just, it's so exciting to see that. and, And hoping that that gap can bridge some of the discussions we've had today, you know, whether it's in manufacturing or just how do you find talent? Um, you know, I think we'll slowly start to produce more with programs like this, and I think Penn has some now, of course, but it's a little bit slower to get there,
0: yeah. Yeah. Well, to wrap things up, Michael, we're running short on time here, but I want to give, I'm going to just throw like one, one final kind of big open-ended question out there that'll challenge you to give me mm-hmm. a, <laughs> a concise answer. You, uh, you know, you've got a lot of experience in space, um, the space across the breadth from, from small to large pharma. Um, you're the kind of guy that I, I think would be fun to work with like you've mm-hmm. got that certain you've got that certain it, it factor right mm-hmm. um which, which speaks to culture i think you know we we started out talking about the culture at adapt immune and how that was so so fundamental to the the company's mm-hmm. growth um so so the question is you know kind of thinking thinking in the it, it, put, putting all of this into perspective uh knowledge culture that it factor what crystallize like one final piece of advice for the leaders of emerging biopharmas on creating an environment and maintaining an environment where that innovative talent, that inquisitive, curious, super smart talent wants to be, wants to stay.
2: Yeah. So I think first off, you have to have people around you. You have to build a team of people around you that share that drive and that passion. And there is no question, my success uh, certainly is not mine. It comes from working around other people that feel that passion, that truly get excited about this. Um, You know, one of my mentors, uh, you know, would always say to me, if I were feeling stressed or just fed up with this, sometimes would say, you know, Michael, Look at what we're doing. Look at how cool this research is. You know, we're and we we're getting, you know, we get to wake up and help people every day do this incredible research. And until you find something cooler and more valuable to do and more rewarding for patients, and we all know people too, right? Everyone has had knows someone who has been faced with cancer. So having the right people around you that share that because when you're when you don't have the energy to keep going in small biotech or even these bigger companies, you have to have the right people around you. So I think you have to really start with that core group that can um, share the, the passion and drive to deliver products like this. Uh, and, and that really, you know, will get you through the, the tough times at these young
0: companies for sure. Yeah. Sound mm-hmm. advice. Yeah. Michael, it's been uh, it's been fun. It's been a pleasure. It's also yeah. been an honor speaking with you. I, I appreciate the time you gave us.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. This was fun.
0: Yeah. Aaron, thank you for facilitating the introduction and bringing Michael onto the show.
1: That oh, was my pleasure. I'm happy to finally meet him, like I said, via Zoom. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, hopefully we didn't scare him away from his service to your editorial <laughs> board. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Aaron Harris and Michael Mailer. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with SciTiva, which offers a host of great resources for new and emerging biotechs at citivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. Aaron and I offer a host of great resources for emerging biopharmas as well. You can find us at salangean.com and bioprocessonline.com, respectively, where we invite you to, to subscribe to our newsletters. I hope you enjoyed today's show, and if you did hit subscribe, give us a review. We'll see you next week. And in the meantime, thanks for listening.